Our text this morning is Psalm 54. I invite you to uh, turn there, if you will. Some years ago, someone asked me, uh, where in the Bible it says, heaven, heaven helps those that help themselves. And uh, I said, I think that's found in the Macintosh Bible, actually. Uh, the Macintosh Bible is that helpful little book that tells you everything you ever wanted to know about your Mac computer and how to fix it. Or it might be found in uh, Anton LaVey's uh, Satanic Bible, but uh, there's nothing in Holy Scripture about heaven helping those that help themselves. As a matter of fact, uh, what you find is uh, just exactly the opposite. That God helps those that are helpless. According to one prophet, uh, King Uzziah, was um, marvelously helped until he was strong. Uh, there came a point in his life when he was too helpful, and uh, God couldn't help him anymore. Uh, God rushes to our aid in those moments when uh, there's simply no human resource available to us, when there's nothing left for us but uh, God himself. When we've come to the end of our rope, when we don't know what to do, when we're stifled and uh, frustrated, and uh, there's simply no place else to turn. When only God is left, then he, uh, he comes to our aid. Uh, Psalm 54 is about God's help uh, for the helpless. It's really a sad little song. Uh, You'll pick up something of David's deep distress as I read through it. He had, he had literally come to the end of himself. There's no human help for him anywhere. He was on the run. There are a number of psalms that uh, David wrote during this period when he moved from uh, the cave of Adullam to Keilah to the wilderness of Judea uh, to Ziph to that part of Palestine today that surrounds uh, what now is known as Matsada. you ever been to Israel and visited that uh, bleak, barren part of uh, Palestine that uh, reaches from the west side of the Sea of Galilee up into the Judean mountains. David was hiding, running for his life in that area, moving from place to place, as we're, as we're told in uh, the First Samuel narrative. It was during that time that David sat down and, and wrote so many of these uh, poignant, painful, uh, tearful songs about his, about his plight. We enter into them during those times uh, when we're in those circumstances, when we've come to the end of our rope and there's nothing, uh, nothing left for us. We've been denied affection or advancement. Uh, no human help. I want to read this psalm. I'm going to read it out of uh, the New American Standard Bible since uh, that particular translation is a little closer to David's uh, text. Save me, O God, David prays, by thy name and vindicate me by thy power. Hear my prayer, O God. Give ear to the words of my mouth, for strangers have risen against me and violent men have sought my life. They have not set God before them. Interesting that David calls uh, 
his enemies strangers because these were his fellow kinsmen, as we'll see in a moment. These were his tribesmen, people of the city of Ziph. Uh, the title to the psalm tells us that he wrote this particular poem when the Ziphites came and said to Saul, is David not hiding himself among us? These were his uh, friends. This was his tribe. Yet he describes them as strangers. Interesting use of that term because that's the word that's often used for Gentiles in the Old Testament. But David sees them as uh, ungodly uh, men. They have not set God before them. That's what's really wrong with them. But uh, in verse 4, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the sustainer of my soul. He will recompense the evil to my foes. Destroy them in thy faithfulness. The word for destroy here is the word to, for dealing a, a death blow, a mortal, fatal blow to someone. Willingly I will sacrifice to thee. I will give thanks to thy name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from all trouble, and my eye has looked with satisfaction upon my enemies. Uh, Gad, uh, who was David's uh, confidant and counselor and friend, counseled David to leave the uh, cave of Adullam because it was a trap. And David uh, fled into the wilderness, went uh, further and further into that, uh, into that terrible uh, desert that stretches along the Dead Sea. Um, that was David's stomping grounds, as we used to say in Texas. He knew that area like the back of his hand. He'd herded his sheep there from time to time. And he had a small, more mobile force. He was able to, uh, he was able to uh, keep away from Saul's larger army as they pursued him. We know from uh, the study that Ron uh, did with us last week that uh, the Philistines uh, invaded the little city of Cala. Cala was one of those backcountry uh, towns that bordered the uh, wilderness. Philistines broke in on the city during the time when they were celebrating the harvest one of their festivals when they were unprotected and pillaged, looted, burned, raped, left the city a ruin, stole their grain, their cattle, began to drive them toward, uh, toward Philistia. Uh, David uh, gathered up his little army and he went after them, routed them, uh, inflicted a a major defeat upon the Philistines, recovered the uh, crops and the cattle, brought them back to Cala, returned them to the townsfolks there. For a while he was protected in Cala. This, this may have been when he wrote Psalm 31, uh, in which he thanks God because he says, you showed me your wonderful love when I was in a safe city. For a time he was sheltered there in Cala, but... Uh, the city fathers of Cala decided that David was too dangerous to have around. They remembered Nob and uh, Saul's massacre of the priests who had sheltered David, or who at least allegedly had, had sheltered him. They betrayed David, sold out their savior to Saul. David fled from uh, Cala, uh, fled further into the uh, into the wilderness. There was one breath of fresh air during that time. Jonathan joined him, searched him out, found him. 
And uh, the text says he strengthened his grip on God. That's a passage we very often uh, use in our Wednesday morning men's class because that's what we try to do for one another, help one another get a better grip on God. That's the only help we can give at times. Jonathan did that for David, reminded him of, of God's faithfulness, of his good name, of his reputation, of what he'd done in the past, and strengthened his heart, gave him a, a better grip on, on his Lord. David must have uh, appealed to the people of the city of Ziph for, uh, for help, perhaps for food, shelter, for a brief period of time. He's, it's difficult to find food for himself and his 600 men, and he went into this uh, another little backcountry town, the little city of Ziph. Uh, they were more concerned about uh, their own protection than uh, taking care of their benefactor. David had been a, a, their protector for years. They sold him out to Saul. They, uh, they betrayed him. Uh, they said that David is hiding among us, as their title tells us. Saul then commissioned uh, the Ziphites to be his spies, to keep an eye on David. They finally located him at the top of a little mountain. There's a, it's called the hill in 1 Samuel, in the first part of the, of the narrative there, and later called, the, uh, as our translations put it, the hill of parting. But there's another older Semitic root that means uh, encirclement. And I rather think that's, that's the name of the hill. That was the name that was given to that particular location, the hill of of encircling. Because David found himself stranded on top of that hill. He had gone there for refuge, and uh, the Ziphites tipped off Saul to his whereabouts, and Saul marched with his much larger army. David was vastly outnumbered. There were only his 600, ill-equipped, very little food. They were stranded on top of the hill. Saul encircled the city, and it's all up with David. It's over. Couldn't run, couldn't hide, no place to go. He was finished, he was done. And it was out of that experience, I think, that he uh, penned this psalm. This is my opinion. I don't know exactly when this psalm was written, but uh, I can see David uh, sitting uh, at his fuel desk with his fatigues on, weary and haggard and scrawling the lines of, uh, <clears throat> of this poem. He knew that uh, the sun would soon be up and he was finished. Now what you see in this, in this poem is David's emotions oscillating between fear and fury and faith. That's the movement of, of the psalm. First two verses describe his intense fear and then he moves into anger. He's furious at the Ziphites for selling him out and and then finally he moves to faith. I was talking to a good friend this last week, and he was telling me about the bind that he found himself in, one of these impossible situations for which there's no human help. And He was unaware of this passage, to know that this is what we were going to, going to be teaching this Sunday. And he said, you know, David, I find myself uh, moving from fear to fury to faith to fear to fury to faith. And I said, well, that's common human experience, I find the same thing, that when I'm in a situation where I'm being treated unfairly, when I'm being oppressed, when I'm under the gun, when there's no way out, I find myself fearful, and then I get angry at those that have put me in that uh, set of circumstances, 
and then I work myself into faith, and then I find myself getting fearful all over again and angry, and sometimes those oscillations, I run through those oscillations over and over and over. That's the human condition. And the question is, how do we move from fear to fury to faith? That's what David uh, confronts us with uh, in this uh, in this poem. Interesting little song, short song for those that are in deep uh, deep peril. Verse five is the uh, pivot point. It's one of those moments of truth when we remember some fact, some forgotten factor that just pops into our mind. The Holy Spirit brings to mind some truth. We say we flash on it, but it's uh, the Holy Spirit bringing it out of our unconscious. That's what David means when he says, Behold, oh, he says, I see, I see. The Lord is my helper. The Lord is my helper. In English, that word helper is a pitiful little word. Uh, We think of a gopher, somebody that uh, just... uh, we just send here and there, run, you know, runs on errands for us. We were, our staff was talking this last week about uh, uh, some job descriptions for various members of the staff, and we couldn't come up with a title for one of the positions, and so somebody suggested David's little helper. <laughs> and uh, got a big chuckle from the staff. Because that word, little helper, is a, it's a, it's a, it's a puny word. It's a sorry little word. But that's not the word in Hebrew. Uh, this word's a very strong word. It's used in the uh, uh, languages of the ancient Near East, the Semitic languages of which uh, Hebrew is just one of a savior, of a deliverer, of a rescuer, someone who gives military assistance. It was, it's used by the uh, Canaanites in a series of letters that are called the Amarna letters, where they were under attack by certain people they call the Habiru, May well be the Hebrews, the time of Joshua's assault on the land. We're not sure, but they fire off letters to Egypt. They were under Egyptian suzerainty, under Egyptian rule. So they cry out for the Egyptian army, come help us, they use this word, etzer, come help us. Strong word. It's a word that turns up in names throughout the Old Testament. Ezra's name, the long form of his name is probably Ezra Yah. God is my help. Azariah's name comes from this uh, this word. Uh, there's one incident in the book of First Samuel, chapter seven, where Sam- <coughs> me, Samuel records a great victory over the Philistines. He puts up a rock there, and he calls it Ebenezer, Ebenezer. Eben is the word for stone. Ezer is this word for help, stone of help, because God has helped us. Uh, he said. It's not a little word, it's a strong word. A few uh, psalms before, Psalm 46, God is our refuge and our strength and ever-present help. That's the word. Uh, God is our sidekick, we can put it that way, but he's more than just a gopher, somebody who's not our little helper. It's a heroic word, it's a majestic word, powerful word. It is, by the way, the word that's used for Eve in Genesis 2 when we're told that God made a helper for the man. It's a very strong word. So people can be our help. Our spouses can be our help. 
but ultimately uh, God is our help. The next line is really interesting. The, all the English translations simply say, uh, the Lord is the sustainer of my soul. But what David actually said was, "David is among, or pardon me, the Lord is among those who sustain my soul. There's no question about the meaning of the text. And I kept asking myself all week, what in the world is David talking about? And what finally came to mind is that David was thinking of his 600, these, uh, these men that had joined David in the time of his uh, deep need, those that were in debt and despair, discontent. And uh, they came to David's side and they were willing to go to the wall for David. We need a kind of help. You know, sometimes we need uh, human arms to hug us. We, we, God's arms are invisible. Sometimes we don't feel his presence. We need that kind of companionship and help, and we need to be giving it to, uh, uh, to one another. It's important that we, uh, we help each other in that way. Garrison Keeler, in one of his books, describes a scene in which a husband and wife are sitting at a table, and the husband has the flu, and... His job's uh, going badly, and he's just miserable. And, and you know, he just—he wants to quit. He wants to give up. And his wife leans over, Keeler says, and puts her hand on his arm and says, "You know, I care for you." And you know, Keeler—and Keeler says, "You know, sometimes that's—that's that's enough. Sometimes that's all we need to know is that somebody cares." But there are those days when you call your friend, and uh, he or she's not there. You call your pastor; he's not around. Call your counselor and he's not there and doesn't return your calls. There's just nobody around. You know, you're just all by yourself. Uh, God engineers those times when there's nobody around because he wants to be our ultimate help. And as we look at our friends that surround us, he's among those that sustain us. And he's ultimately the only one that can help us. And there are sometimes those situations for which there is absolutely no human help. We have gotten ourselves into such a fix or others have put us in such a place that we simply have no other recourse except to God. What that does is, is draw us to him. And he becomes our help. You know, I think I'm learning more and more in pastoral counseling to just teach people to pray. That's really the only help I can give to people. You know, they want five steps to success. They want a quick fix. I don't have any of those quick fixes anymore, but I can teach people to pray. I've discovered I can't help people, but what I can do is direct them to the one who gives help. The book of Hebrews says, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So I just more and more teach people to pray. I think one of the most profound things that the disciples ever asked, probably the best question they ever asked Jesus, is teach us to pray. It's our job. We run out of gas, we run out of resources, we run out of energy, time, money, what, you know, whatever it is that's essential. God's our helper. And the best help we can give people is to teach people to go to the one who is our source of help. We can teach them to pray. Now, the tendency of all of us is to be idolaters. You know, that's our fundamental sin. In the Old Testament, uh, 
the sin, it's always articulate, is, is idolatry. It's the, it, it's the essence of sin. Tendency to make something other than God the center of our life. It can be another person. It can be the help that we, we get from someone else. And we co-opt others in our idolatry. We pull them in and try to get them to nourish our selfishness and our tendency to trust something other than God. We get all bent out of shape because they don't come through for us. You know? Just the way we are. We're sinful, selfish people. You know, I don't question the hurt of people that, that come in a time of need. You know, the man that weeps, the woman that weeps, the, the angry man, the, the, the battered woman, the, the hostile uh, young person, you know, who's fed up with the uh, hypocrisy of, of his parents. That pain is real. That's real. But that person is still sinful. And they still want something other than God. And very often they will just pull us right into their needs. They want us to pity them. They want us to commiserate with them. And we want to show them compassion. We want to do everything we can to let them know that we hear their feelings and we understand their uh, their needs. But, but really what we've got to do is teach them to pray. Lead them to the one who is the uh, ultimate source of, of help. David says, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the sustainer of, of my soul. Now, it's that recognition that leads uh, David from fear to fury to faith. Now, he begins with his, uh, with his fear. Uh, Save me, O God, by thy name and vindicate me by thy power. Hear my prayer, O God. Give ear to the words of my mouth, for strangers have risen against me. Violent men have sought my life. They have not set God before them. David's fearful. Paul says, be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, make your request known unto God. Uh, our, the men on Wednesday morning have been studying the Beatitudes, and we uh, just uh, looked at the first of the of the Beatitudes um, last Wednesday. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And I pointed out that that word for poverty is a word that's used all the way through the Gospels for beggars. And it just strikes me that's what we are. We're a bunch of beggars. We beg. Got our little tin cup out there. Lord, fill it. Lord, help me. Lord, save me. A bunch of beggars, that's all. There are those situations where that's all we can do. We just cry out, Lord, save me, save me. You know, the upward look, the, the arrow shot. I think of Nehemiah's situation when he walked into the king's court and his life was on the line. He could have, the king could have killed him on the spot. And in reporting that incident, he said, as I walked to the door, I prayed to the king of heaven and I said to the king. See, one of those, here goes nothing, Lord, prayers. Those are the best prayers of all. They grow out of a life of devotion and worship. We have to invest time in getting to know God, having him nurture our souls in private. But then through the day, as we walk through the day and we walk into those uh, situations we dread, those 
when the net, when the noose begins to tighten, the net begins to draw around us, Lord, save me, help me. Sometime in the middle of the 14th century, there, uh, some monk, we don't know his name, maybe a monk or a spiritual director <clears throat> in a monastery, wrote a book called The Cloud of Unknowing. One of the most difficult books I've ever read. <clears throat> Excuse me. I don't understand it. But when it comes to the, to the matter of prayer, he, he is profoundly simple. And there's one phrase that jumped out of that book as, as I was uh, scanning through it. God, he said, can be reached with just a little word. And the shorter it is, the better. And we want to ritualize prayer. We want to make it something difficult. God just wants us to ask. Some of the best prayers are inarticulate. They're just groans. You know, oh God, is a prayer. Help, save me. Because what we're doing, you see, is, is acknowledging that we need help from the highest possible uh, source. Help me, Lord, oh, we pray. I told this story before. My father used to tell it about a gentleman that stood up in a morning service and began to pray. Prayed one of those long, complicated theological prayers. Oh, thou great God who sitteth upon the circle of the earth before whom the inhabitants are like grasshoppers. And he went on and on and on. And this old fellow tugged on the tail of his coat and said, just call him father and ask him for something. (laughs) That's the essence of prayer. Just call him father and ask him. That's the highest expression of our dependence upon God. That's our genius. That's the essence of Christian faith. I've said it before, this access, this compliment that God has has played, has paid to us, that we can ask, that we can go into his presence and ask. We, we can cry out to him, save me, O oh God. That's the audacity and the simplicity of, of faith. The older I get, you know, the more simple things become. I want to make that the core of my life, just that, that kind of simple, almost wordless, inarticulate prayer. Going through life, expressing my uh, confidence in God. Save me, O oh God, by your name and vindicate me by your, your power. I was walking around the mall the other day and I saw a sign in Wilson Bates that said, Our name is our reputation. And I thought, that's wonderful. That's exactly what David is saying in this song. God's name is his reputation. We just remember who he is and then call on him to to save us. So it's prayer that moves David from from fear and then he gets caught up in his anger over what people are doing to him. This isn't right. I served these Ziphites. I returned uh, the, the Kalites' goods. What right do they have to turn on me like this? This is wrong. What right does a company have to release you after uh, 27 years of service, three years before retirement? It's not right. It's not fair. David uh, just is angry, furious 
at the injustice of these uh, strangers, he calls them, these godless men that sold him, sold him out. There are often times like that we think God is, uh, is against us, become our enemy. He's our, he's our opponent. I heard a story about Tommy Bolt, a professional golfer, who is, is well known for his furious temper, and he six-putted a green, and he picked up his putter and threw it as far as he could throw it. He shook his fist in the sky, and he said, God, why don't you come down here and fight like a man? And sometimes we feel that way when the tide's running against us and nothing is going right. You know, God's, God's against us, but uh, he's not, even though there are others that oppose us. But still, we, you know, we get outraged when people uh, treat us wrongly, when, uh, when they do things that are unfair. But notice what David does. Strangers are attacking me and violent men have sought my life. Verse 6. He will recompense the evil to my foes, destroy them in your faithfulness. And we say, oh my, that's appalling. That's, that's Old Testament stuff. Give me the New Testament, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Ever did anything like that? Well, you, you haven't read the Gospels very carefully. There was that day you went into the temple and created havoc, started turning temple, uh, turning the tables running the money changers out. Why? Because they were keeping people from knowing God. There were people that were coming to the temple that were hungry for God and they were, they were being chased away by the hypocrisy and the materialism of those in the, in the temple. And Paul does the same thing in, in Galatians when he talks about those that would try to add law to grace and complicate things and keep us from that simple uh, trust that our Lord wants us to have. And he says, I just... I would that they were damned, he says. It's actually the word he uses. Two things that we need to know about these so-called imprecatory psalms. They puzzle us. They don't seem to be in the spirit of our Lord, but we have to understand two things. The first is that David was, was in the line that God designated that would bring salvation to the world. Messiah was the son of David. So when anyone who, you know, anyone who invaded against David in his life was really uh, hostile to God and his, uh, his intentions, Saul knew that David would be the next king. He knew he'd been anointed. He knew that he was in that promised line, and he was trying to resist God and stall God and his plan to bring salvation to the world. And, and when, when that's going on, it, God comes to, to our defense. See, Dave's not defending himself. He's defending God's honor, God's reputation. We don't need to defend ourselves. The other thing I would say is that he, he puts, puts this whole matter in God's hands. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Paul says that in quoting an Old Testament passage. Prophet says, God treads the winepress of his wrath alone. Doesn't want us in there messing around, muddying the waters, making things difficult. So when we are badly treated, we can still love our enemies. That, that's the odd irony. We can love those that oppose us. We can pray for those that abuse us. We can be tender and kind toward those that uh, treat us badly, but we can pray that God will set things right, that he'll take care of things. And David says, the day is coming when I will look on the vindication of my cause. In this world or in the next, God is going to 
set things right. You see. It's not glee. We're not talking about being gleeful. We're talking about a sense of justice. Things will ultimately be, be set right. Uh, when our son Brian was about three years old, he had this thing with one of our dogs. He had this old uh, dog, Peppy was his name, and he was cranky and ill-tempered. And, and uh, Brian was always pulling his ears and pulling his tail. You know, we talked to him about being kind to the dog. And, but this genuine antipathy developed between these two personalities, Peppy and Brian. And Peppy would snarl whenever Brian would come around around him. Finally, had to get rid of the dog because we were afraid of what he would do. On one occasion, Brian was, we had this real heavy table and it had drop leaves on it. And and Brian was hanging on to one of the leaves, swinging his legs under it like that. And he tipped the table over on himself and it landed on him. And he let out this terrible wail and Carolyn came running over to him. And she picked up the table and picked him up and hugged him. He wasn't hurt. He just kept crying and crying and crying. And she said, what, what, what is the matter? You're not hurt. And he said, oh, I looked at Peppy. He said, he couldn't pronounce his S's back then. He said, I looked at Peppy, and he had a mile on his face. <laughs> and knowing the antagonism between those two, I think Peppy probably did have a mile on his face. <clears throat> see, we, you know... We don't want a mile when people uh, get their comeuppance. We need to continue to reach out to them in love. But David's point is, just, just take all that injustice, all that hurt, all that pain, and just put it in God's hands. Watch him work. See what he can do. See? Uh, David says uh, at the very end of his, of his poem, My eye has looked with satisfaction upon my enemies. And uh, one rabbi uh, comments, to look in triumph over one's enemies is to be, get this, an uninvolved witness to their downfall by God's hands. I like that. An uninvolved witness. We don't do it. We don't try to do it. We're not involved in the process. We're uninvolved witnesses to what God is doing. See? So the person who has treated you unjustly, there, you know, there may be some things that you have to do. You may have to use the state. You may have to use the courts. We're not saying do nothing, but we have to put it in God's hands, ultimately, and let him, let him deal with it. Paul says in Romans, do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Now David concludes with faith in verses 7 and 8. Willingly I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, for it is good. For he has delivered me from all trouble, and my eye has looked with satisfaction upon my enemies. David does an interesting thing here. He becomes his own prophet. He predicts his future. He uses what Hebrew grammarians call a prophetic perfect. Perfect. He casts the verb in, in a past tense, so which is not, not exactly accurate. In Hebrew, there are only two tenses. One suggests something that's incomplete, and the other, the other tense suggests a completed action. He uses that, that latter form here, something that's already happened. They call it a prophetic perfect because it's as good as done. That's the point. 
And when God says something, it's done. So on the basis of God's name, which is good, and God's faithfulness, he knows, God knows that, or David knows that someday God is going to set everything right in this world or the next. And so he predicts his own future. He has delivered me from all trouble, and my eye has looked with satisfaction uh, upon my enemies. Now, I, uh, I just want to leave you with one thought. Remember Ron's uh, fine description of what happened at the end of that, uh, that incident. David is trapped on top of the uh, hill of, of encircling. No way out. He uh, looked down that evening, saw the campfires, saw soldiers, probably thousands of them down there. He had his 600. There's no way out. No escape. Couldn't run. Couldn't hide. No place to go. Pours out his heart to God. Save me, oh God. There's no idea what God is going to do. But we know. We've read the end of the story. You have to realize that David's uh, wonderful statement of faith, he has delivered me, came before the fact. He predicted his own future. Uh, We can look back and we know what happened. About the time that Saul was ready to spring the trap. News came to him. Remember the story? Ron talked about it last week. News came to him that the Philistines had attacked and Saul had to withdraw, pull his army away from the hill, and he went back to, back to Samaria. That was God's way at, and that particular occasion of, of protecting David. God doesn't always do it that way, but on this occasion, that's exactly what happened. David was, was miraculously uh, uh, spared. He dodged the bullet, we say. No, no, Israel's uh, historian makes it very clear that God deflected it, which God is, is able to do. Our part is to cry out for salvation. His, uh, his is to save. I was thinking while Ron was preaching last, last Sunday, a, a phrase prop, popped into my mind. Safety doesn't always mean that we're safe. Sometimes uh, we're, safety means being uh, in a very, very dangerous uh, situation. But in the hour of our direst need, our great distress, is very often the hour of our deliverance. God's able to do exceeding abundantly above anything that we ever ask or think. Our part is to cry out. Uh, his to, is to come to our, uh, to our rescue. You ever visit New York City? And you go to the RCA building, you know, it's right out front. There's this huge statue of Atlas with the world on his back. And he's obviously struggling to hold it up. Go right across the street to St. Patrick's Cathedral. And right behind the main altar, there is a statue of uh, the boy Jesus. He's about seven or eight years old. And he has the world in his hand. He's holding it up. Paul says, casting all of your care upon him. Because he cares about you. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving has only begun. His love knows no limit. His grace has no measure. His power no boundary known unto man. 
For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. Let's pray. Father, our limits are limitless. But you have no limits. Your grace has no measure. You give full measure, pressed down, running over. Our cup overflows. We're not promised always physical deliverance in this life, but you guard our heart of hearts. Even in the most dangerous and perilous circumstances, there's safety for our hearts. You guard us. We thank you for that truth. And in those times when our emotions run the gamut from fear through frustration and fury, lead us to faith, lead us, teach us to pray. May we cast all of our burdens upon you knowing that you do care about us. You are our helper, our strong deliverer. For that we can only give thanks and praise you as David does. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.